Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have a special alumni-themed episode. Tracy Heim and I are interviewing Michael Deegan. I'm so excited to be here. Jessica Terry. It makes me sound much more important than I am. And Ryan Williams. Yeah, I like to start off every podcast I'm on with just a moment of reflection. <laughs> Michael is currently at Deloitte. Jessica at United Healthcare and Ryan here in Austin at Yonder. This was a very fun episode talking to people in the same sort of path that we are and we think you're gonna enjoy it. Tracy, you're my co-pilot today. You have some big shoes and a big beard Matt Orr left to fill. At first I thought you said Matt Orr, like Matador. Matador. <laughs> we should call Matt Orr Matador. How did that never happen? New nickname is Matador. For Matador. <laughs> this is your third time this on the show? fourth. Fourth time. Now, so super excited to get to know the alumni a little bit better because I actually crossed paths with them for mm-hmm. one year. You did not... So I knew them in passing, which was super awesome to see him again in the space. And what have you been up to this semester so far? So far, it's only been a week, but it seems like <laughs> it it's been a lifetime. Like it. <laughs> it really does. There's a lot going on for LBJ, some really busy work right at the start of the semester. So have they talked about the crisis simulation on the podcast yet? So it's a super hot topic. Um, it's a one credit course with LBJ. It's like three weeks of prep work. And then we go into a weekend full of a crisis that we basically simulate. And we're all spread onto different teams. I'm, I'm on the uh, United States delegation. You're on Sudan. I'm on the uh, Sudan People Liberation Movement North, I think. It's a lot of letters. Yeah. I just spoon. tell people on the team with the letters. <laughs> I mean, it's not even a team. It's like the non-state actor of the group. So we yeah. we shouldn't even be talking right I now. I call it splamming in my splamming. head. But I don't think they go by that. It's basically a model you UN for adults. But uh, no, I've been in a similar boat working full time. Um, just got a puppy, too. A little Rosie. <laughs> shout out. She has parasites right now. So I have to take her to the vet. Um, hopefully I don't catch them. And I've been shaking all your hands. So uh, oh, no. we'll see how this will go. But uh, maybe we'll bring her on to an episode sometime soon. (laughs) That would be great. I would love that. Or at least a picture. And without any more further puppy talk, we're going to start with Michael Deegan. Hello, my name is Michael Deegan. I'm so excited to be here. Is that how you're going to speak? I I don't know yet. No? (laughs) I guess you're right. Yeah, it should be more natural. This is about how I will speak, I imagine. If that sounds good. Yeah. I, I can continue. Yes, this is generally the volume of my voice right now. So you are a strategy and operations consultant? Yes. Okay, that's what it said on the panel poster. So I just wanted to make sure that was still accurate. Yeah, yeah. I, you could say I am, yes. That's what you actually do, right? Um, yes. Or is that of. like the department? It's... Um, are we, are we recording? Is this good? Yeah, I think yeah, we can just think, go into it. Oh, okay. That's a really natural bridge. Okay. Well, I was hired to be a strategy and operations uh, consultant. And I am, I do kind of advise my current client on strategy, but it's not the way Deloitte categorizes its different practices and, you know, what consultants do. There is like a strategy practice within the firm, 
Um, there's also like human capital practices and they do like um, workforce transformation and big tech implementations are really big at Deloitte. So I am uh, technically like by label, like a strategy and operations consultant. I am working on a tech implementation project though at this moment. Okay, and I do not know what that means. What yes, is tech yeah. implementation? Yeah, yeah, okay. So generally Deloitte will go in and help organizations that want to uh, improve their like technology uh, offerings or infrastructure. So for example, um, one of the bigger projects is sort of this like, uh, like, a, like a financial system um, or a uh, human resources system that a, an organiz organization will use to like run all of their books, all their finances, or, like accounting for accounting purposes or um, for HR, you know, recruiting or like dealing with promotions and, and things like that. So um, I am technically, so I, I'm a part of the GPS practice, the government and public services practice at Deloitte. And as a consultant, you're sort of like a free agent and um, it's up to you to stay like staffed and stay utilized. And I ended up on this project working at a higher education client, um, at a, like, it, like helping them with the tech implementation. Um, and that's sort of where I've been the last year and a half. So I've been, yeah, I've been at Deloitte about a year and a half. That is so cool. Can you disclose which university you're working at um, or college? I don't think that I can, so. You can disclose all the confidential stuff and we stop recording. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so what's the process of a Deloitte client actually getting Deloitte on their project? Do you guys do any cold outreach or is this kind of like, we need help setting up this new project. Deloitte is the best at doing it. Um, I think, like, there, yeah, that's a great question. I think for sure there, there's a little bit of both. So in some, in some cases, uh, organizations, institutions will, you know, seek out professional services when they know they want to upgrade, like, in, like staying with the example of like a tech implementation. So um, they'll reach out to different professional services firms. And uh, in like the formal documents called like an uh, RFI request for information. So they might uh, post that um, either widely or they'll like specifically target different firms like Deloitte or Accenture, um, for example. And they respond to that request for information with, um, you know, this uh, like within that it's sort of like, this is the project we need. This is, you know, this is the, these are the services we're looking for. And Deloitte will um, respond to that and say like, cool, um, this is what our team looks like, this is what we can offer you. Um, and from there, the, it's a long drawn out procurement process where eventually um, Deloitte or a professional services firm will submit um, a, a, like a response to that proposal. And, um, and then eventually if it, the, like the client will select several different uh, services firms to come to like interview in person or like present their team in person, which they call like an orals process. So this can take, you know, any, anything, depending on like how critical like the, the work is or how like urgently they need work done can happen like within like a month to, to even like um, a year, um, even more in some cases. So, cause the, the proposal is just, and the eventual like signing and building like a statement of work is this whole process mm -hmm. of just like pricing all the different um, people they need on the project and stuff. So, how complicated is that when you're working with private companies as opposed to a public one? I assume there must be a totally different. Yeah, and and I think that's why 
um, you know, Deloitte has a very clear distinction between commercial and um, public clients. So within like the uh, the government and public services uh, division, like there are clients from you know local cities to states uh, to higher education institutions, federal. Like there are several federal clients as well that Deloitte works with. And as you know, as you can imagine, the bureaucracy that is involved with like a public client or a higher education institution that receives uh, state funding or federal funding, um, you have to be like very sure that you're ticking all the boxes, you're doing everything well in like a transparent and well-documented way. Whereas I don't know, because I haven't worked <laughs> on the commercial side, but I imagine like you can get away with a little more like you're schmoozing and you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, fancy dinners and buying like you know your potential clients' things. Not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm aware not of that. That happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that that happens. Yeah, but I'd be in for some of that if you can give me some. Of that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't work for commercial clients. So, um, but yeah, it sounds fun. It sounds great. How many projects have you worked with? so far it's been a year and a half yeah it's okay yeah it's it's funny um i'm on the same project that i that i was on <laughs> oh and the thing is um it's that is not um typical for a consultant generally um consultants go on projects like usually like at longest like half a year but more more generally just like two months three months and the idea is to you know Go in, develop your own expertise, but provide your your experiences that you've gained from other clients to new clients, and to continue moving, and to work in this advisor sort of capacity. Um, the project I'm on is interesting because um, the like our firm is actually investing a lot of um, time and resources into helping this client and and learning about this new uh, software that that we're implementing. So um, I've been extended like it's it's weird as well because you you both have to um sort of like develop like relationships with your leaders and if they they like you and they want to take you like on like you know carry you onto their projects that they're leading um moving forward um you have to like kind of like be very explicit with um what your timelines are and how long um you're going to be on those projects but i've been ex extended on those projects um multiple times and I did not expect to be on it this long and I am looking forward to rolling off in April but I wouldn't be surprised if I get extended again I hope I hope I'm not but um well it sounds like you're gonna be an expert in whatever tech change is going on at this university right yes and and that's interesting because it that is not uh, you know I did not go into Deloitte expecting to work on a project like this um, or develop that kind of expertise. And that, you know, also has its, you know, pluses and minuses because I think um, in a way developing that expertise means that you're going to be put on similar projects, which is great because you want to stay, like they, they call it staying utilized. You want to stay utilized as a practitioner um, and, you know, continue like billing clients money um, so the firm earns money. But that said, I think I would eventually want to experience some other kinds of projects and to um, and to learn more about like what Deloitte has going on. And you become like the higher education guy instead of being able to do you know a variety of subjects. Yeah, exactly. And so I think everyone it's needs like, a niche. That's good. Yeah, um, it is. You know, it is helpful. Um, I think that. 
for sure it will benefit me um, in terms of like staying utilized and like growing and my and following my leaders and you know learning and developing. But the other side of that is like you don't have as much like the more you stay in one sort of like uh, domain, the harder it is to get out. I think so. <laughs> So I guess we'll ask as two insecure graduate students who maybe don't know what they're doing after graduation. <laughs> what about LBJ increased do you think was the most practical tool or just, you know, when you think back your three years here, what do you think is the most common application you see? Right. I think um, for sure, you know, when I was applying to Deloitte and, you know, somewhat what I like, I don't use, I don't go like super far in it, but I would say like, Anything like any of the like data analysis classes or advanced like research methods, for sure um, help. Um, I think those are the most transferable skills um, when you um, are working and you know consulting, because if you can do research and then provide uh, you know for a client, for example, and you can you know sh demonstrate your findings like using like data visualization tools. Um, it helped tell a story and help like, you know, present that story to a client that's for sure going to help you. So I think it's hard because I, um, I think a lot of, if I recall being a student, um, like the, taking, you know, um, your, oh God, what, I, can't, I can't remember. Analytical the, methods. Yeah, analytical methods <laughs> or like, I remember like those are the classes that everyone's like, oh my God, I have to like do this, this sucks. But, um, but like to be honest, like that's really what, you know, you, that's what I think um, employers are looking for, like those harder skills as opposed to like the knowledge that mm -hmm. you gain, which is important too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely worried about that because I took analytical methods and microeconomics or the economics that we have to take. I don't know if it's micro or just general. Yeah. But yeah. that's the only like data visualization I've yeah. been in touch with. It's working with like Stata and you've worked with Python. Yeah, briefly, but I mean, do you find yourself drawing a lot of supply and demand charts in your daily life? <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> that's my concept of being a professional. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> um, none of that. If you can keep up the skills that you've learned, like in Stata, or if you worked in R or Python um, or Tableau, um, for example, I think even if like you're just you know continuing to read up on like those things or like you know review your notes and stuff, I think that. If you can convey that you have even like a beginner's level of knowledge from that, from those like initial classes that are mandatory, that's going to be helpful from my perspective. And I think it, it varies depending on like where you end up working, what you end up doing. But just in terms of like what are like hard skills that I think helps me get this job or whatever. Like I think um, for sure when I was like, oh, like, I know data analytics. Like they're like, mm, okay. Yeah. So, well, my question was, would you be more embarrassed uh, lying about a coding language or an actual speaking language on a resume? Oh, what would God. be worse to be caught in? Oh, wow. Um, maybe a speaking language, but that, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I, I don't, I, I generally wouldn't advocate lying in general. When you're lying. <laughs> but, Especially on resumes. But, but, <laughs> Well, the thing is, like, if you like, if you wouldn't be lying if you said like, "Oh, I have like experience in Stata," um, and you would be able to 
sort of like once you actually start working, I think redevelop those mm -hmm. skills. But if it's a spoken language requirement and you're expected to like day one, like do some research and, and Russian or something, for example, like that's, you can't wing that, you know? <laughs> so If you lie about coding, you're not like offending anyone culturally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Actually get in a lot of trouble. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. I want to end off by saying, what did you think you were going to end up when you entered LBJ? Were you, do you always think you're going to end up Deloitte in a consulting capacity, or was this always just kind of a... You know, going to LBJ and doing a dual degree with Crease, I for sure had my sights set on, you know, working for the State Department or working in Foreign Service. I think that the, the climate in D.C. Um, upon, you know, around the time in which I... Uh, was graduating and the hiring freeze that was going on there and having, you know, had an experience like interning there definitely gave me a lot of information to um, make the choice that I did to apply for this job. So I for sure never thought I would be working, you know, like I would go to LBJ increase and end mm -hmm. up at Deloitte. But I do think that it was a good option. And I, and I think that like, I feel like we, we will all have multiple different careers, mm -hmm. you know, in our, in our lives. So I think like, even if, um, this isn't exactly what I was expecting, I am learning a lot. I'm, I'm working hard. I, and it's enabled me to, you know, um, have the life that I have right now. So that's, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. I'll yeah. guess one more final question. What are you looking forward to doing most now that you're back in Austin? I already got torchies this nice. morning. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> What do you miss the most when you're in New York City? I miss I miss space. I miss like, <laughs> you know, like going to um, a restaurant or a bar and just like being able to like move around. Like have York. a backpack with you. Uh, yeah. Not feel like a huge inconvenience. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like I love I love New York. But um, yeah, there's just so, like this Texas is definitely sprawling. And and I miss that. And I, and I love that. So that and I would say like the weather. For sure, like New York, it's oh, yeah. gross in the winter. Mm -hmm. I don't hate <laughs> snow, but it's just like snow in New York City is disgusting. It's not snow; it's like sleet within thirty minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, beautiful for when it's in the air. Then it's gross. Yeah, it's brown, brown slush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't love it. So, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to yeah eat tacos. Um, you know, see some see some friends while I'm here. So. Yeah, and it's yeah. also a beautiful, well, maybe not today, but tomorrow is supposed to be a beautiful 70 degrees. I don't know if you're still here, uh, but it's like the perfect weather. Nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Well, thank you for taking time to come on. Hey, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Are we cutting it here? Sure. Yeah, let's make sure I got your title right since I butchered everyone else's so far. You're okay. an intelligence analyst. analyst. I'm now a okay. uh, senior intelligence analyst, but that's changed since I put my bio in. So, okay, yeah. awesome. It's How a great title. Yes, isn't it? It's really fun. Cool. It makes me sound much more important than I am, but <laughs> that's fine. So this is at a healthcare company called. So yes, I am a senior intelligence analyst at United Healthcare Global in their global risk unit, although we just changed to global security. Corporate branding is very important. Interesting. Is there um, any reason to get rid of the risk? I or? think they think that sounds a little bit too intimidating. Mm -hmm. At least that's my assumption. I don't know for sure. Um, <laughs> a lot of I'm in um, a global security operations center, a GSOC, and um, they a lot of them 
prefer the term security. So travel security, global security. I do not sell insurance. People ask me that all the time. I don't touch insurance. I do nothing with insurance. Um, I'm in a unit that's considered global solutions. And so um, our unit does a lot of things in global security. We've got, um, we do evacuations, we do assistance. I'm in the intelligence portion of it. So that's what I specifically do, but. So you're not physically traveling and evacuating people on the helicopter. No. Okay. No. And you're no. not selling healthcare. Um, I'm not. I'm doing neither of those things. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer because I don't know anything about healthcare. At some point, I'm going to have to. You know what? Uh, yeah, I can't help you with that either. So that's unfortunate, <laughs> even though I work for a healthcare company. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually kind of relieving because your job seems super duper cool, but I would be so nervous to apply to a healthcare company or a tech company or any certain like company if I didn't know. Yeah. Like what that was. Was that like something that you're nervous about? When you I was applied? a little bit nervous, but I actually, so I found this job through a connection um, uh, that I met during an internship. So like a person who knew a person. So they kind of gave me some details on it. Um, and I didn't know what a global security operations center was before this. A lot of them operate specifically for their own companies. So like typically this would be, we have some United Healthcare um, senior level people who will travel. Um, but a lot of our clients are actually external. So we have external clients similar to, um, in Michael's interview with, with Deloitte, um, we're working with a lot of external clients. So those can be universities with students traveling to places. They can be journalists going to places. They can just be general companies with travelers in locations abroad. And we're doing crisis monitoring for them. We're also giving them intelligence products if they need that. Um, we work for some uh, corporate aviators, so sometimes they want flight briefs on a location, just giving them general tactical security information. So yeah. That's super interesting. And you work mainly in like the region of Central Eastern Europe and Central Asia, I read online. So I did that. I okay. So when I was just a little baby intelligence analyst, I did. So I was more regional focused. It's only and, been two years. Yes, <laughs> it's only been two years. <laughs> I was focused on Russia, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So very regional focused. Um, and was doing monitoring for that and intelligence products for that. Now um, I'm doing more management, so it's a little bit more globally focused because I'm managing the analysts and the work that they do and kind of, it's more interactive now, like client facing essentially, but um, yes, so, but I did focus regionally and I still, I still do to some extent. That is super cool. Would you say it's currently a fraught time to be doing healthcare assessment <laughs> for Central Asia? You know, luckily I, so I don't have to do the healthcare side <laughs> of it. We have healthcare intel and we work closely with them. Um, they are having a time for sure. And they work closely with our Asia analysts with everything going on with uh, coronavirus over there. So healthcare intel is focusing more on the actual implications as far as health goes. And then our Asia analyst is focusing more on um, the impact to travel security. Mm -hmm. So the the ways in which they're kind of shutting down cities and the ways in which we can potentially help get people out or get our providers in to get people out so yes more on like we focus more on physical security they're shutting down cities plural i thought it was just <laughs> so wuhan. so if you're looking at yeah um wuhan hubei province they've uh, severely restricted um they've essentially quarantined the city um and we have had some travelers who are there who have requested assistance and unfortunately we've not been able to provide it because oh, it's yeah you have to have a permit to get in or out so yikes yeah. so you can't do anything for them right we can. now they have to we have to refer them to the state department so 
Yeah. So you have like a healthcare wing who actually gives insurance to you. Yes. But they, yeah, I don't even interact with them really okay. unless unless it's in an instance like this where we mm -hmm. have to coordinate with them. So we really don't touch the healthcare aspect of it. We're like we're owned by United Healthcare, mm -hmm. but we do all um, tactical and physical security. So okay. I'm describing risks. If someone's going to Moscow, I might warn them about government surveillance. I might warn them about potential risks if demonstrations turn mm -hmm. violent. It's more focused on physical security from our um, our side of it as opposed to healthcare. And who are your clients? Is it companies hiring you if they have to send people to certain uh, critical areas? Are you yes. in universities? Yeah. Students? So, yeah, we have a wide range of clients and a lot of, so um, a lot of these GSOCs, they're focused on their own companies. Can you say what GSOC means? Yes, yeah. <laughs> global Security Operations okay. Center. So a lot of these little global security units, usually they're catering specifically to their companies. So we're a little bit unique in that and that we're catering to a much wider range of clients. So we do have um, some of them are, are universities and it can be students or professors going to do research. Um, sometimes they'll want to go to very sketchy places and they're focused on the research, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, the value of this research. But I want to go to Venezuela. Yeah. And so we're more focused on the security aspect and what that those repercussions are and like what they might need if they need like security trained drivers or um, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so um, universities, we've also, we cater to some journalists, um, we cater to just corporations in general, other, there's some other healthcare companies that request our services and private aviators as well um, that request our services, yeah. I remember there was someone I was talking to that was really interested in researching nuclear reactors in Central Asia. And she, I think it was like a job interview, and she wanted to get a team of students to go over there and do that. And I was like, that is not going to fly yeah. at all. That sounds like the worst idea. Exactly. And so that's the type <laughs> of thing, especially with students and professors, like they have these very wonderful idealistic aspirations but they'll come to us and we're more security focused and we're like don't do that no don't do that you want to check out the uh, armenian nuclear yes, reactors right. on fault lines like uh, i don't know about that yeah so it's cool research it's but fun. uh maybe not the safest thing dangerous. for undergraduate students yeah. to go to yeah one thing i thought was interesting is that i heard that football games in some countries can be like a really dangerous yes event. actually that's very we have that <laughs> in uh surprisingly enough in a lot of our eastern european country <laughs> briefs one of a lot of the country tips will refer to how aggressive football fans can get and to mm -hmm. maybe avoid the vicinity of those that's so, so crazy. yeah country tip right there for a lot of, for a lot of that that region yeah oh mm -hmm. man so i was abroad this summer and there are demonstrations going on in prague yes and for health insurance reasons i did not attend but i saw Smart. from afar that it was very peaceful and it was actually the opposite of what i expected so i know obviously demonstrations protests are not places that you recommend right. students or anyone to really go if they're in a foreign country as well. And that's what I, that's actually, so that's the region I cover and I'll say at least in Prague, they typically mm -hmm. remain peaceful. Um, in other areas, they don't always. So, and it also depends on how the security, like um, security forces will react to protests. Mm -hmm. So in Prague, they'll usually just kind of like hang out around the edges. They're drinking you know? beer. Um, if you're in Istanbul, <laughs> they might be a little bit more uh, ready to like intervene and forcefully disrupt protests. So there's a lot of Kind of, it's a it's an analytical job. Like you're looking at all aspects of what might affect impact someone's travel. So I know the State Department like also does this reporting system, and they do like 
maybe like medical services and then like there's protests, political instability going on. So you guys are different. Like it's all in-house research that you it's, guys do? Yeah, it's all it's all in-house. It's all open source. Um, we're using social media tools. Um, we're using um, commercial databases like LexisNexis, um, RSS feeds, things like that. So it's all open source data. In some cases, you know, when there's huge crises, like with when the Hong Kong protests first started breaking out, you know, State Department is always actively working on those and getting people out, but they're so overwhelmed that some people might want, they want to pay for operations to get their people out faster. And so that's where you might look towards us. Um, we have less volume of clients, but we might be able to actually get providers in there and get them out faster. That's super interesting. Yeah. You said that a few times, getting people out. What is that process? Are, are you guys like? Oh man, so I don't work um, on the evacuation side as much. Mm -hmm. when, when, when these things happen, typically intelligence is helping um, um, just supplement with information. So it depends. It depends on every every case is different and unique in that respect. Um, with the Hong Kong protests, there was a point where they um, essentially shut down one of the universities. And so we had students on the campus who were forced out. So. Um, it's difficult because at that point we'd have like 200 students calling in, um, all separately calling in, all of them leaving, their parents are calling in, so it was like pretty hectic. So to be honest, it's different in every respect. I'd say the first thing is if the airports are open, we try to get them on a flight and we try to provide secure transportation to get them there, but sometimes depending on the location they're in, um, if that's not an option, um, then we're looking for road routes out. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that also depends on if we have providers in the area too, right? So we have vendors, companies that are right. on the ground that we work with, and in some locations we do not have that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going somewhere where we don't have that, then you're gonna have to look elsewhere. I see in Hong Kong would be easier than Uzbekistan or something, right, yeah. double landlocked yeah. countries. So, um, well, actually Uzbekistan would probably be harder because we have less, um, we have less vendors and providers that right, we have right. more in Hong Kong, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what's the space look like? Are you, who are you competing against? Do a lot of places have these sort of wings in-house? They um, didn't before, but they've been, they've been, I don't, and I don't want to like name competitors. Right, right. There are other, <laughs> there are other healthcare companies that are starting to do this. There are other, um, just in general companies that are starting, a lot of um, oil and gas are starting to do their mm -hmm. own and they've been building those up. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of that and it's, Honestly, I would say in the past just three years, this concept of a global security operations center, a GSOC, has exploded. Mm -hmm. People are starting to think a lot more about um, duty of care for their own employees and what that means and how they need to take care of them if they're abroad and, and how to develop those capabilities so that they don't necessarily have to look externally. Um, so yeah, there's. There's a lot of competition mm -hmm. now that there wasn't before. It seems like the last 10 years, just like the field of like a geopolitical risk has just become like a field in itself. Yeah, I would. Why, why do you think this is proliferating? I'm curious, but just like the market has been really high and a lot of companies have more money and they need to be a little more clever. I think it's, it's more of that pressure to provide um, duty of care mm -hmm. to employees. Like, like I was talking about, it's, there's more pressure um, publicly when when something goes wrong for for someone someone's employee who's mm -hmm. abroad if they're not taking care of them it's kind of like why did you send this person to this country right. without adequately making sure that they were protected when you know you know the state department has it listed as like a risk level four country mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of pressure to do that there's also a lot of demand for it as well now uh -huh.
I think it's great because that means job security, maybe for us or mm -hmm. <laughs> definitely literal security. There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> it's a booming business now. So. Oh yeah. So do you think any specific LBJ class or crease class really prepared you for it, or I don't know if I would say tips? any specific, but I think um, like crease for sure. Just the regional knowledge really helped me because, like I said, I started as a regional analyst, so they hired me specifically for that position of um, Russian East European studies. Um, it's in our company, the analysts are broken down by region. Um, and so just having that regional knowledge really helped me, um, because we have trained analysts before for regions that they weren't familiar with. And that's very tough to, yeah. if you're not familiar with pre-existing conflicts, um, areas to avoid, um, culture, history, society, it can be very difficult. So the entire cruise program helped me with that. And <laughs> then great. there's a strong focus on writing and in, in what we do. And so, um, and, and analytical writing specifically. So on the LBJ side, I think the analytical writing courses I took were very, very helpful. So you mean I should be taking the memos more seriously than I do right now? The two pagers? If you are familiar with the memos, I think you're already on the right track. Okay, great. Yeah. Just <laughs> being familiar with them, honestly, um, that's already kind of a head start. So, yeah. I, I feel like very few people come back and they first job title has crease in the title yeah. of their position. That yeah. has to be very unique. I think, honestly, yeah, I think it is. I was very lucky to get this job and so excited to actually get to work with my region. And I, you know, unfortunately, my speaking of Russian speaking skills have like deteriorated a little bit, but I do read constantly because a lot of the monitoring that we're doing is focused on in my in my case and like the analyst position was focused on like russian news sources and that type of thing so um it's been nice to actually be able to employ those skills that's so cool that. on your team is it mainly like people that also did area studies mm -hmm. or like speak yeah. russian or speak all Polish different or... um yeah um well we're since we're such a small unit it's literally one analyst per region so and mine's I cover a lot, so, <laughs> or I did cover. I'm, I don't technically cover a region right now, yeah. although I do because I have that expertise. But um, so yeah, like the Asia analysts focused on um, Asian travel to Japan. Um, a lot of them have those regional backgrounds that they've come into. Not all of them necessarily do. Some of them did more functional work, but they all have some kind of like international relations background. Yeah, I'm probably interested in the region because it's just so cool to just work with things all work across the globe, really. Um, yeah, Central Europe and to Central Asia, that's like 15 time zones to be yeah, covering at the same time. <laughs> that is be pretty bit, cool. Yeah. Do you have any specific anecdotes of just something that popped up and you're just like, oh, I wrote a paper on that. I actually know something about this area specifically. Or is it more just like... I generally understand Russian culture or something along these lines. A lot of it is generally understanding um, just conflictual issues in, in the, the region. So um, if we're talking about recently with the Russian government um, just essentially all resigning, <laughs> mm -hmm. I had um, our vice president calling in because he was very confused by that and pretty alarmed. And so <laughs> it's just kind of discussing those issues with people who don't understand them. And when things like mm -hmm. that happen, you know, it can be alarming. Um, to so be just, honest, I don't understand what happened. It's like I woke up 
And all of a sudden you had to be 21 years old to buy cigarettes in America. Did not know that was a real thing. And the Putin administration had basically quit. Can you give, a, give us like 30 seconds of what oh is God, going on? So... No, we can cut this. We don't have to do this. Uh, my, my only hot take is like, it seems like he's preparing for a power transition, which is mm -hmm. what I said. And yeah, you know, um, so, and, and it was expected, maybe not this early and I didn't expect it to be so sudden. Um, but when it happened, um, and the way that we catch news is like a tweet comes across my little tweet deck and I'm like, oh, okay, the whole government resigned. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, and so our, our vice president called in and is there any security repercussions that we need to worry about? Or this is this is insane. They just the whole government resigned. Are they going to be like shutting down borders? Do we need to be worried about that? And I was just like, oh, no, um, you know, his term ends in 2024. So. You got to prepare for that somehow, right? So. It seemed like a lot of it was just codifying things that yes. sort of existed already. Yeah. So the next so. person can't abuse it as right. much, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's, I, with my region, it's a little bit quieter than some of them. Like mm -hmm. the Middle East analyst is pretty mm -hmm. busy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. So what does a typical day look like for you? So you wake up at 3 a.m. apparently. Four. 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 Okay. I get to sleep in a little bit. 15 yeah. time zones. Um, <laughs> I'm coming in. We do daily publications. So we do world update in the morning and the evening. And that's just what's happened. Um, so as like at the, the senior level, I'm essentially compiling those and helping to get those put out. We also do what we call a hotspots report. And that's mm, events that could immediately impact um, security for travelers. So we've been covering coronavirus in that every day. Um, and so my days centered around those three publications. Um, I'm monitoring 24 seven or not 24 seven, but while I'm at work, <laughs> I'm monitoring the entire time. Um, just because if there's some kind of crisis, um, we send out alerts for clients for those like immediate travel alerts so that they know to avoid whatever the vicinity of that is. Um, and other than that, the rest of the day is structured around what kind of ad hoc client requests we get, um, <laughs> which sometimes there's there's some pretty unique ones. We had one um, a while back. This was a few months ago. We had one for Afghanistan where the I was surprised that we even had any clients operating in Afghanistan, first of all. Um, but we did. And there was an NGO that was targeted by the Taliban in Kabul. And there's this crisis group that works there that is a client. And he emailed in and said that they had evac'd their local staff from Kabul to um, a provincial city. And they were getting these night letters left on their cars and um, on their the doors of yes. where they were staying. <laughs> and they were understandably you know, worried and concerned about that because they were allegedly from Taliban militants threatening them. And this is an NGO that worked um, in the lead up to the elections that was trying to provide um, kind of advocacy for for just just for voting. Um, so that was a bit controversial. Um, and so literally all he was asking for was for us to kind of do open source research and try to verify those uh yeah. those letters yeah oh that's terrifying but you weren't working on that this is just something you like you know actually i was working on that so, um yeah i was working on that um uh in conjunction with some other people but yeah that's crazy so so i mean they can we have some standard products that are generalized security briefs and then we'll have ad hoc requests like that that come in those are a little more rare but they do come mm -hmm. in so the rest of the day is just structured around what we get or what happens.
And we'll have to end with what's your favorite Torchy's taco? Oh my god, definitely the trailer park. Make it trashy. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> answer. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. We could do a moment of silence for uh, the lawnmower outside. Is that on there right now? Okay. Thank you. Say. <laughs> I thought you were okay. going to say Kobe Bryant, which I'd be in oh, favor of. 24, 30 minute long episodes are silent <laughs> for Kobe. This is now a basketball podcast. All right. Before the lawnmower starts up again, <laughs> Ryan Williams, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming on. So before we get started, we are sitting right now in the fusion room mm -hmm. in Burdine, room 480. Yes. And it's my understanding that you had a pretty big role to play in how this room actually existed. So first question, what was this room before it was this beautiful space? What why fusion? Yeah. I still why, don't know what that means. Why fusion? Um, it's fun to say, first of all. Really fun. Should we all say it? Fusion. Fusion. We're all going to combine like okay. Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, exactly. We're not careful. Yeah, this room was a really ugly conference <laughs> room um, with a mishmash of furniture that was pretty underutilized. And at the time, there was a space with uh, a couple old computers upstairs, um, but no real place, no real venue to host uh, original research and the kind of initiatives that you folks are doing this is exactly the type of thing that this room was intended for yeah Yay, that's so great i'm so happy <laughs> to hear that in my mind this was always just like someone's either a really cool office or a really bad storage space it was a really bad storage space yeah yeah um it, my my colleagues are nodding um yeah they it, it started off as, a, as that idea of i think a lot of the times I don't know about y'all, but to do certain types of work, I need a certain type of environment, um, or, or, or it better facilitates it at the very least. And I thought that um, to kind of create a culture where people feel comfortable asking for help about using computational methods to answer the types of research questions that Crease and LBJ students have, um, there needed to be an environment that uh, really fostered um, and made it easier to explore and exploit those types of um, methodologies. So with Crease's help, it uh, really came together and um, I hope people are still using it and uh, kind of exploring some of those methodologies. And what was your tech background before you got to UT? Was this something you're always going to end up doing or did you pick up a lot of skills here? Um, I. I like I'm a project based learner where I'm like, I want, I wonder if I could do this mm -hmm. and kind of picking up enough skills along the way um, to either do the thing or realize that I need way more skills to do. I've never thing. heard that term actually. That's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, there were um, no end of interesting research problems that uh, I ran into here, which, and the, of course the UT environment is an excellent place to pick up those skills along the way. So it's kind of like a happy accident where I, ha I, I happened to stumble into a lot of really interesting research questions that kind of necessitated learning a, inch by inch a lot of these skills. Um, and I had some programming experience before coming here, but um, not really any experience taking a complex research question and breaking it down into the requisite skills that you need to learn, which is um, one of the things that I really credit um, this program with helping me out. Yeah, I'm glad it was useful. So you work in cybersecurity now. Um, well, no. However, um, nothing's really like just cybersecurity, right? right? Like nothing ever is just cybersecurity, right? and also kind of the nature. So I work at a startup called Yonder, 
um, that used to be called uh, New Knowledge. And they uh, are the firm that was responsible um, for the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence report into Russian interference in the 2016 election. I did not um, know that. That's so cool. You didn't, yeah. know the, yeah. you didn't know there was Russian interference in the election? Oh, no, I just didn't know you were. Well, there's a whole report uh, about it if you're interested. <laughs> I didn't know you were researching. And yeah, your website's very cool. If I can just say that, it's very scrollable. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we <laughs> spent hours just scrolling up and down at our site. Um, and so I started, the, the day I joined the company actually was the day that we were on the front of the New York Times in two different articles. Um, so I was like, oh my God, wow, wow, this is really intimidating. And I joined as a, um, my, t my job title was computational disinformation analyst. And so um, what's interesting about the startup culture though, is that you can have like multiple job title changes mm -hmm. in the course of like a year and a half, but within those job title changes, the role changes could be double that. Yeah. So I've done a lot of different things within the company and I started off really doing a lot of computational analysis of information operations from all over the place for our various clients. However, now the company is really orienting itself towards being able to provide those services for the public sector, but also taking some of the technologies we developed to understand those dynamics and kind of just layering uh, context on top of brand conversations for Fortune 100 brands. So taking those same technologies and instead of saying, hey, there's the scary internet where people are out to get you, um, telling these brands, there's a better way of engaging with your audiences online that uh, is more authentic to how they are actually um, engaging with you. So, so we're trying to get as deep as possible in what you guys are actually doing. Mm -hmm. Like, How does your uh, product work? Like, Do you have any specific use cases that you wish to talk about, you're free to talk about. Yeah, we're kind of in a, a transitional moment where we're opening up to the outside world. Which is the startup's always people. transitioning. Yeah, exactly. Right um, for example, um, a lot of the times at these huge companies where the brand is literally one of their biggest assets, like on their balance sheet, you know, mm -hmm. it's like a line item that our, ass, our, our um, brand is worth this much money. Like, uh, if you feel like you're waking up every morning and it's your job to understand how your brand is being uh, brought into discussions online, um, when you really think about it, that's a very confusing job to have um, where you don't understand why your brand is showing up in these narratives that are mm -hmm. happening over here that um, could be toxic or really political polar politically polarizing. Um, so what our product does and, and what um, our analyses support is giving those people insights into the um, groups online that are driving these narratives so that they understand, well, yeah, uh, we're being talked a lot about in this particular narrative, but it's all this, um, this type of group and there's a lot of automation in, the, in this group. And so there's a lot of inauthenticity in how we're being related to online. Um, so, I started off doing the disinformation thing. Now my uh, official title is um, data science team lead. And what I do is I help develop capabilities that end up in our product that essentially amount to doing cultural anthropology um, computationally and uh, providing context around the types of groups and their ideological uh, affiliations and why they're mentioning the brand. 
that is like a ridiculous mixture of crease and like a modern application of it. It's yeah. Impressive. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um, not like even several months into the job, not what I imagined I'd be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're a fan of being able to constantly reinvent your role and responsibilities, can't recommend startups enough. <laughs> if that sounds really uh, anxiety inducing for you, can't recommend that you don't do the startup life enough. <laughs> um, it's not for everyone. So that's my question. What's a common myth you think people have about startups? Because in my mind, I think of beanbag chairs and sparkling water. Maybe it's LaCroix, maybe it's something else, <laughs> H-E-B oh, brand. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's all three. It's all three <laughs> of those types of water and a separate <laughs> bubbling water machine. Um, that you developed. No, we didn't develop. Okay. Yeah, it's not proprietary Yonder Tech. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's plenty of beverages, so don't worry about hydration. Um, so you were asking about the biggest misconceptions. Yeah, uh, like what's a common life? myth that people think, or maybe not about startups, about disinformation. So uh, I think a, a common myth about startups is that they all share a kind of um, how do I want to say this? That they all share a kind of terrible self-promotional um, way to into themselves culture. Yeah. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, it is often the case. Um, however, one of the, my favorite things about where I'm at right now is that uh, the people I get to work with are the most um, intellectually diverse uh, brilliant people who are all animated by um, our mission of bringing more authenticity to uh, the internet and kind of reclaiming the internet from the dumpster fire that it actually <laughs> is uh, into more of its original vision. And, and when you're surrounded by people who really believe in, in what the mission of the firm is, um, you really, it's surprising how little that kind of, Hey, we're a startup and we all have to like, um, wear that culture on our sleeve. It's not really present with us. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's a wholesome group. I, I love it. So you talk about bringing authenticity to the internet. And I've heard this phrase that whatever you don't like about the internet is what you don't like about humanity. Mm. And it's part of that I agree and disagree with. Like something like, we're just talking about this, Kobe Bryant just died. I've heard like nothing but like effusive praise. And it's all been very genuine and wholesome and actually made like, it's like reinforced, like, oh, this is a good thing about how people communicate. That's not the common narrative of how we actually talk to each other on the internet. How do you personally feel about, you know, the kind of human aspect to what we're talking about? And what are you guys doing to like explicitly change that? Well, there is no denying that, um, at least as of right now, the majority of what you see um, online is driven by people. Right. And, yeah. and all of the kind of cognitive biases, biases that we know about people um, are at play in, in those scenarios. However, um, there is a secondary variable that's affecting what you see online, which is the uh, affordances, the features of the platforms themselves. And not just that, but the uh, assumptions that are baked into those features um, have significant and possibly like dispositive uh, effects on what you see online, right? So you may only be seeing um, that one narrative in regard to uh, Kobe Bryant, 
because the platforms have decided that it would maximize your attention to see this kind of thing. And so the incentives that the platforms have directly affect the information that you're exposed to and the networks that you're embedded in and um, have a demonstrable effect of further radicalizing you into that group, even if the group itself is not radical, right? Mm -hmm. um, and further entrenching you, embedding you in a knowledge network that um, may exist offline and, and is really composed of people, but is being mediated not through, you know, the internet's not like a cocktail party at scale where you, you're, you're just walking over here and you're walking over here and, and sampling the conversation. Um, there are systems that are largely invisible to all of us that sort us into the, the experienced reality that we see online. And uh, that's the type of thing that we're trying to shine a light on. And so the features are saying just like likes on Twitter or Facebook or upvotes on Reddit, it's just like that those mechanisms create a real machine. Those mechanisms provide the platforms the information they need to tailor the algorithms that show you the next piece of content. Mm -hmm. And they are, not, uh, they are not optimizing for any type of social good, mm -hmm. right? They're not optimizing even for what you... Uh, what your highest self would say, I want to see this, this, and this. I want to be exposed to this and that. Um, they are optimizing for what will keep you on the platform longest in order for you to see more ads. And um, when that is the incentive, uh, all of the decisions about the features that are developed um, are reduced to kind of that really base uh, instinct. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so it's not just about what you like and all you're doing is providing them signals. Um, sometimes even signals that you don't know you're providing them because they're tracking you off the platform and they're buying information about you from these other data marketplaces in order to better build a model of you to show you only the things that it thinks will capture your attention. So how do we get a more genuine application at the internet while being profitable? Because that's what's going to drive these companies. So um, my I can't speak necessarily for um, Yonder in this regard, but my, my personal um, thoughts on this are that there's plenty of money for these platforms to be making with that is compatible with them making some common sense changes to the way they uh, select content for you to see. Um, and from the outside, what we can do is provide context um, to our clients about um, how those incentives and how those elements of human nature have created essentially groups that can drive um, silos, uh, uh, algorithmically siloed people um, who can drive conversations and narratives and at least give them context and information so they can make informed decisions. Because um, everyone talks about these platforms as, as being built for individuals, but uh, groups are real. Uh, and they harness the features of these platforms in different ways than individuals do and can um, create the illusion of consensus um, when there's really not. And so that's a really scary thing for a brand. You know, if you're trying to decide whether or not you want to um, renew a television series for another uh, season and all you're being exposed to is the loudest people who are super fans of that, <laughs> of that TV series and no one else mm -hmm. really cares you might waste $20 million producing five more episodes of it that like 13 people watch. Mm -hmm. um, so it has real bottom line impact for uh, even brands. Yeah.
is there anything you do when you're using the internet, if it's like apps or anything? I'm just thinking of like Spotify has this thing called Taste Breakers. Mm -hmm. It's a playlist that they curate to make you like get out of your comfort zone and listen to something else. And I've talked to someone about like, why doesn't Facebook like show you things that like maybe are like not what you're into? Do you even use Facebook or? No. Okay. Facebook only shows me things I'm not into. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Facebook has me pegged because I did like some really strange kind of research things like looking at people online. Um, Yeah, I I don't think Facebook really knows who I am, which is fine. I don't really want them to know. What's your Facebook password for the audience? Oh, yeah, I'll tell it later. It'll be down below in the description. Right. Social security number, (laughs) Facebook password, all that. Yeah, Um, so you're not on like Instagram, WhatsApp. Uh, I I participate somewhat. Um, However, a lot of the magic of those platforms has kind of been ruined for me (laughs) by seeing um, so clearly when you start over from nothing and you actually are, are looking for inauthenticity, you see that the kind of curated experience of these platforms that I'm sure that, that we all have um, uh, is really not the reality. And there is a um, really dark undercurrent of people doing things that are abusive or that break the terms of service of their own platforms um, that all they'll do is they'll just create another account. Mm-hmm. and that is a surprising amount of the conversation online and we just don't experience it because uh you know we have um created our little bubbles that that we live in um so uh, unfortunately yeah i especially towards the beginning of of my experience at uh, new knowledge slash yonder um i was really having to dive into some really unfortunate parts of the internet so god yeah yeah that's not fun yeah not fun so your company is based in austin you're based in austin you Mm -hmm. haven't left since you graduated no so what is i've been living in this room oh really yeah underneath that underneath that table when no one's (laughs) there is like actually a closet back there that like i'm not surprised it's yeah that's my closet It's locked as a sleeping bag in there. <laughs> yeah, all of those um, folk costumes. That's, <laughs> that's your my sleepwear. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. What is your perfect Austin weekend? Oh, I've been kayaking more recently, mm. and it's really nice. On um, Lake Austin, or yeah, uh, anywhere, but pretty much there because that's in the middle like of the I-35. only place. Yeah, I thirty five. Everyone's throwing their um, trash. <laughs> yeah, Hyde Park. There's some great spots. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd be lying if I, if I said that, uh, a lot of the time, the ideal weekend after a long week of work <laughs> isn't just kind of staring out of, off my balcony into empty space. Um, <laughs> but even, even there, it's, it's pretty nice to do in Austin, right? Yeah. Um, because, uh, until recently it's been really foggy here, but, um, it's always nice to. I, I've I've just been enjoyed uh, walking around recently, taking long walks. Where do you see yourself going at Yonder? Where do you see Yonder going? Do you see more pivots happening for both of you? Or do you guys think you found a niche that you can really build on? That's a really good question. Um, I would be shocked if there weren't more radical um, changes, and not in the sense that like our theory of the case is incorrect, but just that there are way more opportunities to apply this type of thinking. Um, across the board and you know we have like a product right now and and there are already ideas percolating for what the next application of some of these capabilities are Um, 
And so what my role is right now is really kind of looking at the capabilities that we have and the problems, the complex problems in the space and trying to like match one to the other. So if I had to predict, I would say more of that. Yeah. And hopefully getting to do more research into really understanding those complex questions better so that we can better um, match them with capabilities. And we asked Michael this earlier, but do you think LBJ helped you, LBJ Crease helped you in specific classes or skills or just gave you that sort of, you know, intellectual flexibility to be able to shift to whatever you like? No, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. To me, what was most valuable about my experiences weren't individual um, like data analysis skills that I picked up um, or even domain knowledge, although some of that was really, really useful. Uh, what was really valuable to me was preparing me for the startup environment, was being able to kind of be entrepreneurial um, within an organization and understand what are like, step into an organization, look around and understand where the opportunities to add value are. Not everyone realizes in grad school, but like there are opportunities to do that. I mean, you two are, are, are doing that right here with this, with this podcast. Um, so, so that's one thing. And then also just like stress management was like something <laughs> that no. like, you, I haven't perfected that yet. Yeah. You will. It's never perfected. Not, uh, yeah. It's never perfected. Um, and then the, I guess the, the third thing that really helps me a lot is not everyone's going to have the same domain background as you or the same life experiences as you. Um, and in grad school, a lot of the times you have to get across really, really complex or divisive, um, ideas, theories, and communicate about them in kind of a dispassionate way in order to find them in order to harness the most value for them. Uh, whether it's for a research project or deciding who's going to pay for pizza in the study <laughs> session, like what pizza you're going to order, what pizza you're going to order. Like you have to like take these complex pizza questions and, <laughs> and boil them down to something understandable. No, but the, the process of like being able to effectively talk about really complex things with all sorts of people mm -hmm. is super valuable and something that, um, in grad school, because you're doing it all the time, you forget that a lot of people don't develop that capability. And so you can step into an organization and say, well, this is really, really complex, but we can kind of create these abstractions to think about it this way. And that is one of the most uh, valuable things I think I got out of my experiences. And all, all the domain knowledge, again, mm -hmm. and, the, and the skills were helpful, too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to figure out a way to add that to my resume. So yeah, I can speak complexly about oh, it. That's a terrific answer. And I mean, that's a weakness that I think more college grads are having. It's just I haven't been able to communicate with people who don't totally agree with me. And that's a problem at LBJ. I mean, you mm -hmm. don't see a lot sure. of people with right-leaning or who want to express the right-leaning views. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even when it's discussed, it's discussed in kind of a um, caricature type mm -hmm. fashion, mm -hmm. which really doesn't serve anyone well. Right. Or it's played for laughs, which is just like not helpful for right. anything. And yeah. that's perfect as a conversation about how the internet sucks and yeah. how we can actually make it better. Back to your point about people. Speaking of people, what's your favorite uh, Torchy's taco? <laughs> mm, my favorite Torchy's taco is the Taco Deli Conquistador. <laughs> um, Do they sell <laughs> 
<laughs> Shots fired. Uh, sorry, I'm surrounded by Taco Deli. Yeah. Like when I go to work, it's the closest, and at uh, my home, it's closer to, to me. So again, it's it's just one of those things, like the filter bubble. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a taco filter bubble. It exists. I live in it. Um, You're not helping. <laughs> I I don't remember the name of it. I think it's either the Democrat or the Republican. It's okay. my favorite. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks for, for taking the time. Me. We're excited to have you on the panel later. Yeah. But good luck in yonder. Maybe you'll have a different title or the company of a new name next time we speak. But I'm sure. very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. It may, is it the Mr. Wait, I might be confusing it. Mr. Pink might be tuna and Mr. The Mr. Orange. Yeah. We we'll get our IT on that. God. Yeah. Katya. God. You should be furiously typing right now, Katya. <laughs> they got you. <laughs> you guys he got me. He doesn't no. anymore. He's not even from here.